Hello and welcome back to the stories that brought you here. It's the podcast dedicated to the stories of the people from Pender Island, British Columbia. I'm your host, Chris Wokalik, and I'll be sitting down in conversation with current Pender Island residents to hear the stories that brought them to this creative little island we live on, and to also hear the stories that brought them to the point that they're at in their lives right now. Today, I'll be speaking with Joy Theory Llewellyn. Now, if you know Joy like I know Joy, then you're going to know her as that author that lives on the island. Well, we're going to get to hear Joy talk about that along with, you guessed it, many other things. We're going to get to hear Joy talk about spending the first 17 summers of her life at an isolated fly fishing tourist camp that her parents owned in northern Quebec. She'll speak about her time teaching screenwriting at the Vancouver Film School. And she'll also talk about the multiple hiking adventures she and her husband Evan had had on the Camino de Santiago. All that and so much more in a really delightful interview that I was really pleased to get to do with Joy. And once again, like every other interview, this one is unique and I really enjoyed doing this. And it was actually our first real conversation that we had together, Joy and I, and it was an absolute pleasure. And for those of you who are regular listeners, you may have noticed that it's taken a little while to get a new podcast out. And the main reason for that is because of a new project that I've been working on, which is a business that's actually come from doing the podcast. If you've had the opportunity to listen to the Southern Gulf Island heritage recordings that I did last summer with Connie and Harry, I've taken that idea and made it possible for people to do private recording sessions with me, where I do lengthy pre-interviews and then in-home recordings at the person's house, and then I edit myself and all the inconsistencies out of the final recording. So people can have their life history, their stories, and their wisdom passed down to future generations. I've been working on a few of these so far in 2020, and it's been really amazing to get to do, and it's actually held me back from doing more podcast interviews, but fortunately for me, it's given me an opportunity to move forward in a new direction in my life, and participate in something that I think has a lot of value. So if you have a family member in your life that you would like to have their oral stories preserved, or if you yourself would like to have your life stories preserved, you can contact me at uh, email address that I have in the show notes, and it's memoir at outlook.com. That's all one word, memoir at outlook.com. I can give you more information and a clear idea as to pricing and everything else that would be involved in the process. So if you're at all interested, please feel free to contact me. And that's it for that. We'll see you on the other side. And without further ado, here is my interview with Joy Theory Llewellyn. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. This is fun. Yeah. We're here on, what is it? It's Tuesday. Tuesday. Tuesday evening. Tuesday evening, 7 p.m. It's dark out. The mood lighting's on. We're in the basement. It's almost warm enough. It's great. It's just great. Good. Okay. Well, actually, before we get started with the first question, uh, how was your day? How was your day today? It was good. It was a good day. Got lots of odds and ends done. I'm resisting doing my income tax. It's on the list. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. It, well, it, they don't have to get done for a while, though. No, but because I'm self-employed and have my own little business, you know, I have to enter everything. Every coffee, every movie, every 
gas mileage. So oh, it just kind of adds up. Yeah, for sure. That's a, that's, well, yeah, I've never really been self-employed and have to do that before, mm. but that's coming for me, actually. You don't make it sound like it's a lot of fun. Yeah. You must be able to do it with this. Uh, Don't you like writing off work and yeah, writing off to, equipment? I'm going to have to look into that. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not I'm not tax savvy. Uh, okay. Maybe we'll talk about I this. I am side. the queen. I've been doing this for a long time. So yeah, I can show you what I do. Okay. Well, I might have to trade notes or you'll have to give me your notes. I'll copy your notes. Yeah. But uh, okay. Right. Well, let's uh, jump into the first traditional question, which is, of course, what brought you to Pender Island? Mm. Well, um, my husband, Evan, his mother and sister bought a property in 1973, I think it was on the island, and had a house built and lived here full time. And then when they passed away, uh, was it 80, shoot, 84, anyways, in the 80s, we inherited the house, Evan and his brother, and we bought out his brother, and we rented it out for quite a few years, lived here for the first year, 1991, and then rented it out for about 25 years, and then we've been here full-time seven. When we were here initially, our daughter was in grade two at the school, which was much smaller then, and uh, to this day has, you know, the McCochran girls are her best friends still, and they're all these young women in their 30s, so good good As memories a, for a family. What made you decide to move to the island for a year when that uh, first um <laughs> Well, we had we have nomadic history, and we uh, Evan had taken a year sabbatical, and uh, I had taken a year sabbatical, and so we lived in Germany for a year, and then came here and lived for a year, and uh, loved it. But we had to get back to North Van to get back to our jobs, and we came here seven years ago. In my version, I think Evan might have a different version that we would be here for two years, and then move to Victoria. And that was seven years ago, and I feel like we're rooted. Okay. Well, what happened seven <laughs> years ago Like uh, that made you get rooted? How did, how did that first year uh, go? Well, our son had uh, graduated from high school and was going to college, so we gave him two years in Vancouver thinking, okay, we'll, we'll hang around the area until he gets settled. We initially planned to move to France, actually, full-time, and then um, that didn't happen. And so we just ended up... We have found a wonderful community here. So it's very easy to have this as base and then travel out. So we still travel quite a bit, but Pender is home. Okay. And so yeah. with, you know, having the house that was passed down through the, it's the same house that you're living in right now. It was, yeah. So, uh, well, the, his mother, Gwen and Joan, his aunt had a house built but they lived there for about 10 years, 11 years. And then Gwen died. And so Evan's aunt had the second house built that we are in now. And she lived here for about a year and then died. And so we inherited it from okay. her. So I'm still meeting people on the island who knew Gwen and Joan Stevens. Nice. Yeah. That's pretty cool. How does that How does that usually come up where yeah. people know that you're related? It's usually just through conversations. The Anglican Church, I met a woman, Connie, who knew both women and they were active in the Saturday market. And so I think just, you know, Pender, there are no secrets. Everybody knows things. I know. It's, it's kind of funny. It's, you know, it's uh, in a small community. You don't know who knows each other or who's related to each other. And, we uh, we did learn that the hard way the first month or so where we just made some comments about people just, oh, we met these great people and then found out we were sitting at a table with the ex who is not in good terms. And so we learned, oh, OK, we just have to take this slowly. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> small towns, you know, everyone, small communities. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so you say that uh, it, it's been it's been great. It's went well for the uh, the seven years you've been here. It's been wonderful. Yeah. Well, yeah. maybe if you could sort of describe about uh, how that you've uh, integrated into the community yeah. and what you've found uh, so interesting. And well, um, Evan has been very active in theater for many years. So the first thing we did when we arrived was pay our five dollar membership with Solstice and become involved in the theater. <laughs> Please join people. <laughs> uh, it's a great organization, lots of fun people. And so he's been so active in the whole, in plays and directing, and he's written some things and he's acted in lots. So that has been a huge component of our social network. And I'm a writer, so I have met, I think I said to you once before, there's something in the Pender Water. The creativity on this island is so impressive from jewelry makers to writers and painters and you know, I, I have this wonderful cape of sorts that Wendy made, you know. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah, Wendy, idea, yeah. Yes. And Wendy and Colin, she wove. And there's just, it's amazing. And Colin's woodwork and you doing this, you know. People are just creative as I'll get out. Yeah, for sure. And musically as well, too. It's amazing. Yes. And the whole music end of things. Absolutely. Yeah. We were just at the Gather on Friday and it was terrific. Great food, good music good company. It was fun. Yeah. Was it uh, band playing that gathered that night? or was It was it uh, BTU. So uh, Barney Bentall and Sherry Ulrich and Tom. I don't know Tom's last name. I didn't know him, but they were terrific. Cool. Yeah. BTU. Yeah. Gather has yeah. been a real nice addition. To it the has. Island. It has. Yeah. I'm going to go there yeah. on Friday in a few days and uh, go to their Valentine's show mm -hmm. and check that out. Looking forward to it. Yeah. But so you found that it's a very artistic, creative community and... Very welcoming because it's very welcoming mm -hmm. in that sense oh it is and uh ellie did you know ellie see this is the end of the day folks so <laughs> my brain doesn't work as well with names at the end of the day i'm having this lovely chamomile tea which is not exactly charging me up but um anyways our lovely neighbor ellie within a week she had like a or 10 days there was like a street potluck and she introduced us to everybody on the street. Wow. And I thought, holy mackerel, that hasn't happened in, that didn't happen in North Van. And that certainly hasn't happened in other communities I've lived in. So you can get quite blessed here with good people. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, so you guys are going to stay here for a while. Yes. Um, I think we still will maybe move a little bit to Victoria. You know, we're, we're both healthy and doing well, but we... We are on the elder end of things, so I'm just thinking about further down the line. Okay, fair yeah. enough. Well, let's let's wind the clock back, and <laughs> we'll we'll go back to uh, closer to when the clock started being wound, and uh, maybe find out where where you were born, <laughs> and let's get into some of your uh, your history here, yeah. Joy. So, actually, where where did you grow up? I grew up in northern Quebec, in a small mining town called Shabugamo. Um, my dad was a Minor and a God, he did everything. Northern Bushman, that's how I describe him. And my parents had um, fly-in fishing camps. So, yeah, my childhood was mainly bush life. It was great. It was a gift for me as a writer to grow up in the bush, that's for sure. So my parents lived in Chibugamo, and then they built these different fishing camps, fly-in fishing camps in northern Quebec on the Kaniapaska River, it's called. It's a thousand thousand miles north of of uh, Montreal. Runs into Ungava Bay eventually. So it's there's nothing there's nothing there but the three camps, main camps, and the Cree guides from um, 
Miss Dassany, who would come and guide for the summer, and then American guests. Because what Canadian would pay big bucks to come, you know, be in a place without electricity, without running water, with lots of mosquitoes? They're going to Florida. We were getting the New York lawyers and <laughs> who were really enjoying and game for that kind of break from everything. Neat. <laughs> yeah. So it was good as it, you know, we got a box of books from the Montreal Library every two weeks and listened to radio at night as long as the Northern Lights weren't too bad and cut out the signal. Whoa. It was quite wonderful. A regular Northern Lights? Yep. Wow. So we had a plane every two weeks, 10 days to two weeks. Okay. Yeah, well, it was good. So I had a good life. And then the winters we spent in Ottawa as I got older and went to school there. But, you know, I, I don't know if anyone else has had this experience, but it's almost like my summers were in color and my winters were in black and white. Mm. And my winters were great. I had a wonderful experience in school, good friends, but there was something about that time in the bush that just brought me alive in a way. And you and I were just talking about the work that the two of you did in towers, fire towers. That, you know, I think you, you get that kind of, just that, that quiet in the bush is like no other gift. Yeah, totally. Well, let's delve into that a little bit because mm -hmm. I, I love hearing people you know, articulate and expand on experiences that are meaningful in their lives. So mm -hmm. 17 summers. Yes. First 17 years of, of my life, they had the camps mm -hmm. and then uh, they sold them and I finished high school and then I hit the road. So I traveled around the world for two years. And I think going from Ottawa to the north to Ottawa, like back and forth, you know, spring and fall. Mm -hmm. I always think I was a bit like a Canada goose. I had a migration I had to make. <laughs> and so when I graduated from high school, I had to keep moving. So I did. So I traveled around the world for two years. It was great. Nice. Fell in love and broke my heart and did crappy jobs, stapling boxes, and, you know, grating pineapples in Australia. All the stuff you're supposed to do when you're 18 and 19. Okay. And yeah. your parents were full on uh, happy about you going off? Um they were supportive. Now as a mother, I thought, holy mackerel, they, they were really supportive. <laughs> I, I, get a, I had a better sense once my kids reached a certain age of the just how good they were with me that they did encourage me to go. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Well, where yeah. was the first country you landed in on that trip? I was in Australia for a year, but I went via Thailand and yeah, Denmark and just hopped around and then Almost a year in Australia, I was a governess on a governess on a sheep station. Well, what does that mean? Uh, that means that I I worked with a little girl. We were about eighty miles from the closest town in both directions, and I had a school curriculum, and we did an hour on the radio a day. Otherwise, I taught her grade two. Hmm. It was really fun. I I like teaching a lot, and you know we did a lot of fun things like checking out eight foot tall termite hills and like you can learn a lot just by walking around in Australia. <laughs> There's a lot happening there. Yeah, so much happening yeah. there. So of course my I've been thinking so much about the people I knew when I had all the fires and the farmer I worked for and yeah, it was anyways, it was glorious. And yeah, and then I went to Halifax for a while and had a horrible job in a terrible tavern where I got my butt pinched by Russian sailors and things. And then I went to Mexico and stayed there for a while. And so had a good time. was two years the plan all along or just two years? No, I just enough? kept, I'd do a job, make enough money to go somewhere else. And then I had a terrible job 
it was in a union factory, and I met a woman who chastised me for coming back too early from the break because I might get fired. And I thought, I have to go to school. <laughs> so I did. So I went and, and um, studied biology, which was my love. I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't know any writers. And my dad said, nobody makes money. You can't work being a writer. That sounds like so, a dad thing for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Where, where yeah. did you go to school? I went to, um, I went to college uh, in Peterborough, Sir Sanford Fleming. It was great. They taught foresters, biologists, and archaeologists. It was a really fun time. People there remained dear friends. Yeah, it was good. And then I worked in uh, the North and met my first husband, Paul, who was a polar bear biologist, caribou biologist, worked with black bears. So thanks to him, I ended up in Yellowknife for five years, which was also really good. Liked it. In fact, I've often thought that Yellowknife and Pender were very similar in many ways because we had lived in this small town in Edson, Alberta, for a year while he studied caribou in the foothills of the Rockies. And that was like 1976. And unfortunately, in those days, we weren't living together. And I just wanted to find yogurt. And so I was just, I did not fit into Edson. <laughs> so, so we went to Yellowknife and poof, the first week we had more dinner invitations in one week. You know, it was like coming to Pender. And people brought their kids and their dogs if you had dinners. I, I love that. I love multi-generational, like animals being part of it. So well, let, Pender's let, it. Let's hang out in, <laughs> in Yellowknife in the mid-70s for a little bit here. Oh, okay, so you go up there and it's a very welcoming great. community. It how, was. How big was Yellowknife in the mid-70s? I think when we arrived, there might have been 8,000 people. Okay. Something like that. But, you know, in those days, heck, Paul was, um, so he was working for Natural Resources as a biologist. And uh, making a very good wage, plus he got $500 a month tax-free Northern Living Allowance. So it was young. Everyone was uh, educated. Everyone was keen. There was lots of working with uh, the Dene and the Inuit. Like there was, there was a community of mixing that, I don't know, maybe I've romanticized it, but Let's it, romanticize was quite, it. it was quite wonderful. And so you'd go out and ice fish and two hours of light a day, you'd go skiing on your lunch break or, you know, it was, it was good. Cool. And what were the summers yeah. like for you there? Lots of bugs and then lots of light, you know, maybe the sun would go down at 11 and be up at one in the morning. But yeah, I, it was, um, it was a wonderful place to be when you were young and keen and game for anything. The bush. We spent a lot of time out in the bush. Did you guys live in town? We or? did. Okay. We were in town. Yeah, which is great. <laughs> yeah. I have found over the years, I mean, we've done a lot of traveling, Evan and I, and, and but I really like a tap with the letter H on it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and a toilet that flushes. <laughs> Even though we've done a lot of traveling where we haven't had that, you know, this squats and things. But It's you know. a nice luxury to have. It's, it's, sometimes it's, a, it's easy to forget that it's, uh, a, it's a luxury. I know. It's... We're so blessed in Canada. Our, our life is so easy compared to so many places. Yep, without a doubt. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Don't even really recognize it sometimes, yeah. you know, you just like take it for granted. <laughs> Look in true. the fridge. There's nothing to eat in here. Oh, it's yeah. full. I don't want any of it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and that's where backpacking is so good because you just have a small pack with your whole life in it. And I mean, you two, again, you two did that. You know what it's like. So it's good. It just teaches you what matters. Mm -hmm. Well, book. 
maybe uh, we'll get to the backpacking a little bit, but maybe expanding off of Yellowknife a little bit here. So after five years of being in Yellowknife, mm-hmm. then you wound up leaving Yellowknife. And- I did. My marriage ended and I had an eight-month-old baby. And so I thought, okay, this is my life now. What do I want with it? And I wanted to be a writer. So I applied to the creative writing department at UVic. I actually really wanted to go to UBC, but there were, I think, three times the number of students in UBC than there were in all of the Northwest Territories. And I thought, I can't. I just can't. I got to be this little country bumpkin. <laughs> so I, I went to UVic, which was a terrific thing to do. It's a really good program. It's a small community. My parents had retired, or smaller, you know, in terms of UBC. Sure. My parents had retired to Parksville, so they were very supportive of me during exams, midterms, things like that. They would come and get my daughter, and she just thought this was the best life ever. Grandpa and Grandma were just always there, so they helped a lot. That sounds being great. Being a single mom. Yeah, it was good. And being a single mother and going to university was probably one of the biggest life learnings I had had up to that point. So, And my daughter and I, she's 37, and she's like one of my dearest friends. We're very close. She's a lovely woman. And so I feel that's the, the plus of everything. Yeah, for sure. When you say it was yeah. a lot of learning, because I guess I'm, I'm interpreting that as it was really difficult. It was. It was. Yeah. And so from that university experience, what mm-hmm. uh, the work that you got into from that was? Yep. I, um, I moved to Gabriola for two years and thinking small island, I had no money. You know, I had a student loan. So I got a job at Haven by the Sea, which is a personal growth center there. And uh, I don't think within the first month or something, I met Evan. And I came home with my, my version of the story. <laughs> I came home and I said to Emily, who was like four and a half or something at the time, oh, I've met this most opinionated man. Oh, and two weeks later, he moved in and that was 32 years ago. Wow. <laughs> so I thought, oh, he's not opinionated. He's just really direct. Oh, I really like this. <laughs> anyway, so it was good. So you and Evan met on Gabriella. We did. Was... Yeah. He was doing one of the month long workshops and it was wonderful. Okay. It's been good. <laughs> right on. And so, well, okay. I'm just amazed at the variation of places that we've already covered so far that you've, you've existed in your life. But I have nomadic feet. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. But Gabriella Island and uh, living there. So we're talking early 80s now? Yes. Uh, well, no, actually late 80s. Late 80s. Yeah. Okay. My, uh, yeah, UVic was 84 to 88. So it would be 88 to 89, sort of. And okay. Yeah, it was good. It was. It's a wonderful little island. It's a nice community. Oh. And then Evan and I got together and he was taking a sabbatical. This man I met who keeps saying, he kept, I didn't realize he took sabbaticals every five or six years. And so we went to Europe and lived in Germany for a year. Wow. Whereabouts in Germany? And that's good. In Lar. We picked the Canadian base, and I worked in the little cafe, made sandwiches and things. And Evan, how'd this work now? So, because he, he speaks a number of languages. So, he taught German to the wives of French soldiers, and he taught French to German police officers, and then he delivered pizzas on the weekend. <laughs> and, and I worked in this little cafe, and our daughter went to school. And then anytime she had a holiday, we were gone. We went skiing in Switzerland and, you know, visited northern Italy and climbed mountains. And this sounds amazing. It was. It was a good year. Nice. Was yeah. it a hard working year as well? Or? Um, yes, because anytime you live in another country, there's always 
you know, it's just different. The systems are different. Mm-hmm. Things to work around, yeah. And then we came back and lived on Pender for a year. And that would have been 90, 91, around there. And Emily went to school here. And that was great. That was a good year. Okay. But then we had to get back to life. Back to life. <laughs> so with Back to Life, I know that uh, you've yeah. had an extensive career with uh, arts and writing. Mm-hmm. And is that sort of where things started to take off? Then? Yes. Yeah. So our son, Alad, was born. And I was able to stay home for the first year, which was really great. And then and I thought I would go back into journalism, but Vancouver was just chock-a-block full of all these TV shows and things happening. Mm-hmm. So in my naivety, I picked five companies and sent five letters out, and I got a job with a, <laughs> a production company and ended up working there for a number of years with the best boss ever. And uh, just one thing led to another. I started off filing and watering plants, and by the time I left, I was developing TV shows and writing scripts. and. And just kept moving on. And then also I started teaching at the Vancouver Film School after a number of years, which I turned out to love. Wow. Okay, it well, was so much fun. Let's let's dig into that a little bit because I'm I'm totally curious about people's careers and and the interesting things I that know, they've done. So when uh, when you mm-hmm. wound up getting the promotion from filing and watering mm-hmm. plants, and then what uh, what job were you given specifically? Well, um, I just kept saying, I'll read scripts, I'll read scripts, I'll read scripts. <laughs> so she's this wonderful woman, Eileen Hoder. She started giving me all the scripts she was being sent. And so I would read them and write a report. And she liked what I was saying and started to trust my opinions. And, you know, and I was also gatekeeper because she was always being approached by writers. So I would meet with them first and find out what they were pitching and I remember having one man come and say, he's got the be- I've got the best television show ever. And I said, well, what do you like to watch? And he said, well, I never watch TV. Everything's crap. And I thought, okay, well, <laughs> this is not someone that we probably want to invest time and energy in. <laughs> he never watches it and doesn't like it, but wants to make one. So stuff like that. So sometimes I had to be the heavy. But I got to write. She was fabulous. She was open to any idea. She introduced me to people. Spoiled me for what a boss could be. Okay. And so when you say yeah. you got to write, what, uh, what yeah. did you get to write? Yeah. So I, I developed, um, I ended up developing a lot of shows for her and then she would take them to broadcasters and yays or nays. And I did a lot of research and, and then I would write the, we call the pilot script, the first script of the series, whatever. Sometimes I couldn't believe I was being paid to do what I was doing. I was almost thinking, is someone going to find out? <laughs> this is so much fun. Right on. <laughs> Were, were you spending a lot of time <laughs> off hours in your like creative yes. mind thinking yeah. about? And- no, it was. Well, the, the one thing about the film and television industry, and some people listening will know because there are a number of people on Pender who work in the industry. You know, it is bizarre hours. Yeah. My one little claim to fame involves X-Files. And... uh I had written a spec, what they call a speculative script. So you write a sample script for the show. And so I had written a spec X-Files and just through circumstance got to have a meeting with J.P. Finn. Um, it was only a phone meeting initially, but, you know, it was like he was one of the producers and a really nice guy because I thought, oh, anyways, Alad was nine months old at the time. So this is an okay story. I know legally he probably wasn't allowed to say this, but 
you know, I said, yes, I really want it. Just, I got so close because I loved X-Files. Were you an X-Files fan? I was, actually. Oh, yeah. I did like X-Files. Yeah. Sure, yeah. Anyways, he said, good God, woman, you've got a nine-month-old? Go home. And he didn't mean go home and just work. He just said, don't take this job. You're going to be working, you know, 12, 14, 16-hour days. <laughs> you know, enjoy your baby. He had three sons, I think it was. So I didn't. But I always loved that. That was my six degrees <laughs> with the X-Files. Okay. Yeah. So, well, uh, yeah, I know that the industry is synonymous with uh, like, crazy work hours. It's, uh, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. There were a lot of places I worked where I think I was the only married woman with children. Oh, it really? Just, yeah. I was just a lot of people were divorced or it's a tough industry to keep a marriage going. Yeah, I guess it's really stressful. And yep. High energy and dramatic. I ducked chairs. I was told to F off regularly and then kissed on both cheeks. Oh, it's, it's a weird industry. <laughs> you know, but it's so much fun at the same time. So, I don't know. You have to like that kind of energy. For sure. For sure. So with with the creative side of the work yeah. that you did through writing, where, mm. where did that lead to and how did that um, develop? Mainly documentaries. I probably, I don't even know, 30, 40 documentaries I worked on, which I really liked because you get to research and become a mini expert on something. And then, uh, so that was fun and all levels. I wrote them. I researched them. I worked with writers who were writing them and helped if they were stuck. So I would pitch my own projects. I would be hired to work with writers who were working on something. And then I ended up just mainly working with writers and liked that very much. I'm doing story editing. And I also did um, script analysis work for Movie Central. So I would read scripts that were wanting to move from the treatment stage of things, which is like a short story version. And then they would want money to write the first draft or they would want money to write the first draft to go to the second draft. And so I would write reports on that. Or I would read the book or the graphic novel and then read their adaptation and see. That was a great job. So it's it's really fun working with creative people. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Was, was that something that you saw yourself doing when no, you were... No. no. And then teaching at the film school was, was also really good. I became a better writer because I had to break everything down to teach it. And the one thing about the film school... Everybody working there was a professional. So I would work there and then I would disappear for a few months and work on a show or, or travel sometimes. You know, everyone was coming and going, but we all were very current in what was being shot and working on shows that were happening in the city. So it was a very vibrant, alive, wonderful place to be. And I was there for eight, almost 18 years. I guess 16 if you you know, consider the years I took off to travel with our family, but. Wow. Yeah. 16 years. Yeah. Amazing. It was, it was really good. And they were so good about all of us. So you would teach for two terms or four months and then someone would get a job somewhere and they would disappear to Montreal to work on a game or come back and they would just slip us in and out. But it meant that all the teachers were very current. Neat. Where is that located in Vancouver? It's at uh, Camby and Hastings. Well, there's like five different campuses around now. There's a huge animation department. And I was in the um, screenwriting area. So. Interesting. Well, yeah. I, like over 16 years, I'm sure there was mm -hmm. so much. But I guess once you stepped away from that job, what do you think was the most important lesson you learned from having <clears throat> that job? The one reason I 
I love hiking in the Camino. I loved working in film and television is the camaraderie. It's the community you develop. So even within the film school and then working on projects in between, you just, you have to work together. They're not solo projects. So I, I like that a lot. I loved working with the students. Then I loved going and working on a project and I love coming back. Uh, community is fabulous. Nice. You know, all those creative minds. I mean, some of them are just wacko, but even the crazy ones are really fascinating. You never get bored. No. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, you you mentioned the Camino and uh, mm. definitely we're going to spend some time mm. getting into that for sure. But then you also mentioned yeah. taking a trip with your family as well, yes. too. And uh, that's something I want to want to. Yeah, this um, I'm always happy to talk about this. So Evan and I decided after our year in Germany that we would try to do a family trip every five, six, seven years, something like that. It ended up being nine years before we did it again. But um, for five years, we lived on four-fifths of Evan's salary. And the sixth year, we had the equivalent of one year salary. And so we divided that by 365 days, and that was our budget. And then we took the kids and we backpacked around the world for a year. And our son was in grade four. And so he, we took his books and we sort of split up the subjects. But boy, when you think, about, when we talked to his teachers, they said, you know, when you take out gym and recess and lunch, and if you do two hours a day, you're fine. Wow. So, so Al had had to write a journal on the country and we'd research before we went to Thailand. So he would know it. And he became our money guy. He did, that was his math. He, he was a whiz, nine years old, and he could go from bot to euros to whatever. <laughs> he was really good. And then our daughter was 18 and she said, I'm coming along for the cute guys with accents because <laughs> she had finished high school. So yeah, so it was a, a wonderful family year. Okay, well, maybe talk a bit about where you went and yep. uh, how that year um, The first six months were Southeast Asia. So we spent time in Thailand, two months in Thailand, and then we were in Bali in Indonesia where we were going to spend a couple of months and 9-11 happened. And so we were in a Muslim country and we got stones thrown at us and it was a, a scary time. Unfortunately, all the planes had, you know, were grounded. So as soon as we, we ended up, instead of going to Sumatra and all the other places we were going to go to, we went to India and were there, we were there for three months. And that was fabulous. That was a hard, wonderful, glorious, kind, unsettling country. Have you been to India? You know what? I haven't, no. Oh, I would go there tomorrow, drop of a hat. And we ended up staying in a lot of ashrams. So not that we were followers of any of the gurus, but I'm quite intrigued by intentional communities for whatever reason. People come together for religion or politics or whatever. And we found they were very safe places to be with the kids. Didn't worry about them. Mm. Yeah. And then we went to Turkey and Europe. And the last six months when we were in Europe, we did woofing. Do you know that? Oh, uh, working, for sure. Yeah. 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 So working on organic farms. Yeah. So we worked on a goat farm, very isolated goat farm in the Pyrenees Mountains. And we worked in vineyards in Italy and we worked in, um, yeah, in Italy, actually, we worked in this really cool place. They make the only miso in all of Italy. <laughs> they were all biodynamic farms, all macrobiotic. All, we, we learned a lot. We ate well. 
Yeah, it was great. I worked on farms. We had to look after donkeys and good for the kids. That's fantastic. That's really good for the kids. So that was six months of... of yeah, so six months in Southeast Asia and then six months in Europe. Okay. Yeah. All right. And we had a funny... So Alad was still nine and a half, not 10 yet. And boy, he wasn't keen on the woofing and he used to complain. So we just doubled his chores. You know? Said, no, nope, you have to fill the wood box and you have to do an hour's worth of work a day. And he moaned so much, so he had to do two. So he stopped complaining. <laughs> That worked well. <laughs> good tip. He was he was a good sport, and Emily was terrific. She was really she was it was fun. It was a good family year. How did it feel yeah. to come home after that experience? I found it hard to leave the house for a couple of weeks. I just couldn't adjust to suddenly being back in routine. And even though I was starting to want purpose, waking up in the morning to have purpose, yeah. But then I was, you know, able to slide right back into the film school and that helped a lot. Yeah. Well, yeah. so with within that trip, you felt as if there was a bit of a purposelessness to it? Yes. About month 10, it got so it felt frivolous. Hmm. And partly it was the traveling we were doing. You know, it was good for my kids. I think they will forever appreciate their life. I remember Emily saying at one point, Sorry, Emily, I'm going to tell you a story on you now, but she was 18 and she's quite quiet, quite shy. And she said to me, you know, I think I'm a feminist, <laughs> which kind of out of her mouth. And it's interesting. So she said, you, you and Evan gave me the same medical and dental as Alad. You let me go to school. I've been to, you know, she was going to college. So she saw how different places were in India and, and Alad just learned he could eat anything. He he was quite a picky eater, and boy, by the time we came back, he just ate anything put in front of him. <laughs> so, uh, so it was good. Yeah, good family year. I love how you described that Evan saved one fifth of his mm -hmm. income. Yeah, when we decided we were going to travel, we we put a map of the world up, and we talked a lot about it with the kids, and we watched videos, and we watched movies, and we read books, and everybody got different colored stickies, and yeah. they could put it on the countries that they wanted to go. So we had the map in the hallway hall. And Alan just kept putting his on Disneyland. <laughs> you know, like there was no variety. <laughs> it was like, this is where I'm going. <laughs> Which we never did, unfortunately for him. Yeah. Well, that would probably break the bank, you know, like multiple I days know. at Disneyland. How I much know. is that going to cost? Yeah. But, you know, that's really great for people listening. I think that it, it sort of demonstrates that it's not that difficult mm -hmm. because took four years five well, years five, we, yeah four-fifths of a salary for five years yeah and uh yeah and then also woofing because it was cheap in southeast asia to travel and sure. we rented rooms in people's houses and then we lived in ashrams you know where you didn't pay a lot um usually you had to help clean or you help cook a meal or that kind of thing but that was okay but in europe because we did woofing where you you get room and board. You don't get paid anything. It's just you get a place to sleep and you get fed really well. Mm -hmm. And then you work. And so we would do that for a number of weeks and then we'd move on and then we'd work and then move on. What was yeah. your most memorable woofing experience in that uh, European trip? I think that goat farm was the most incredible. It was, uh, we arrived just at birthing time. There were 73 female goats and they had... Was it 45 kids, I think? And so we had to help and help separate the kids because they made organic goat cheese. So the, 
head of the pharma wife said basically she doesn't want the kids. <laughs> you know, she just needs the mothers to be, the used to be pregnant and, and then giving, or the nanny goats, I should say, not used, yeah, to be giving milk so that she can make cheese. So they would pick out a few that they would keep and the rest got fattened and were sold for Easter dinner. Mm-hmm. But with that experience, it was... It was uh, terrific because we were very isolated. We had horrible flea issues. Fleas were a big issue. So we would take our clothes off at the end of the day and put them into garbage bags and put them in the freezer and then put on our night things. And in the morning, we would take the clothes out and shake all the dead fleas and put the clothes back on. <laughs> Just So you were constantly battling fleas. Oh, but ate well. It was stunningly beautiful. The Pyrenees, and we ended up, we walked over the Pyrenees a couple of times doing the Camino. And this was much more rugged, but perfect goat country. Cool. Yeah. And, and so it was an intentional community, which I really like. There were five families that lived on that property. And there was a man who made musical instruments, and then our farmer, husband and wife, they, they uh, had goats. Someone else had cattle that he kept down in the valley. And another woman taught yoga and English down in the valley and then lived. So they were all unrelated, but wanted to live together. So Was that the first time you'd experienced an intentional no, community? No. no, I've lived in them a lot. And when out of high school, when I was traveling for those two years, I was, I tried ashrams and different gurus and different farming communities. And I, I like that. Um, the hippie. Remember I said I'm an old hippie? Yeah, totally. totally. <laughs> but it, it seems as if that particular experience really stood out to you. It that was. Those, those it was five families and partly well because together. of the kids. It was so great to do it with them. And we had lots of fun. And Evan is just such an entertaining man. So our kids know every Monty Python skit by heart because we would practice them as we were shoveling manure or, you know. So it's just He was a, a good guy to travel with. Cool. <laughs> So you yeah. get back from the trip and, uh, yeah. and, and life and life, life settles in and life settles yeah. in. And then yeah. how did, yeah. how did things evolve from there? Um, well, it went to back to teaching. Evan, Evan had been a counselor for youth at risk and he was really good, but it, it, it's a very stressful job. So one of my favorite Evan stories we were already in bed, I think, and we heard this big ruckus. And I looked out on the street in front of our house, and there were, I swear, there was like 30 teenagers, and they had surrounded a police car. And there were two cops, a woman and a man, and the teenagers were drunk and aggressive and threatening. And so we immediately phoned, you need to send back up. And nothing happened for like 15 minutes, and you could just feel the energy rising. And so Evan said, okay, I've got to go do something. So I'm standing by the window with the phone and I think, I'm going to be a widow. <laughs> I just, I was just imagining the worst and it went out. And, and then I saw this six foot eight guy put his arm around Evan. And then I heard, hey, it's Mr. Llewellyn. He's a good guy. You know, and then they're phoning taxis and suddenly taxis are coming and they departed. Like, that's my man. Wow. My wonderful husband. <laughs> yeah. And then I decided to do my master's. So I, I started doing my master's at SFU. And this leads into the next part. So when I was writing my thesis, that coincided, to start writing my thesis, coincided with Evan retiring, 2008. Okay. So he said, what if we go to Europe? 
let's put our house on the market and see what happens. <laughs> and two weeks later, it was sold. Wow. So then we, <laughs> we went to Europe for a year, lived in southern France, and our son did grade 11 there. It wasn't an easy year for him. I mean, he'd been in French immersion, but it's very different when you go to France. Yeah. So we had a wonderful year in southern France. Traveled a lot. I did my, I researched, wrote, and defended my thesis from long distance. So that was an adventure. Yeah, it was good. Did you guys do any hiking while you were on that? Yes. Uh... Evan, actually, just coincidentally, he was told about the Camino. So he did a two-week beginner version, just did from Le Puy to Conque, and came back and said, okay, we're doing that whole thing. Wow, really? Yeah. So it, it was a couple of years later, but yeah. And while we were there, a woman who had be a French woman who had become our best friend and really helpful, she was on the inner circle of um, a Tibetan Buddhist Rinpoche, like a Lama in outside Kathmandu. So she lived in her place in France for five months a year, six months a year, and then she lived in the uh, monastery in Kathmandu. And so I got an email from her at one point, 2000 and nine, I guess it was. She'd gone there and she said, okay, he's just written a book, Shalpa Rinpoche, and come here, you're being invited. So I ended up going to Kathmandu and living in the monastery for five weeks to see about maybe making a documentary, about writing a book, something to do with him. And that was fabulous. But I realized I wanted, it's his wife that I wanted to follow around. She was this amazing woman who'd, you know, been a refugee in a Tibetan refugee camp in India. And I don't think she had a lot of schooling, but you know, there were, there were hundreds of monks. I went to a teaching of his in Hong Kong that had like 500 people. She arranged everything. There was construction happening. There were teachers and she was stunningly beautiful. So I just thought, this is the woman I'd like to do the documentary about, <laughs> you know, how many people do documentaries about Buddhas? wife. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've seen one. The suffering of the world was such that he abandoned his wife and child to, you know, like, anyways, I think it's the spouses that are almost more interesting than the men sometimes. But that was a no-go because he was the shining star. Oh, so you didn't get to do it? No, that would not have been allowed. Oh, wow. Okay. No, she had to kiss his feet every morning. And she was fabulous. She was kind to me. Very interesting. And I, you know, he was, he was, he didn't always see eye to eye, but I also respected a lot of what he did. He had, you know, built hospitals and he did a lot of things with young Tibetan refugees. And so just, we had a different, I kept being told, get out of your North American mind, Joyce, get out of your North American mind. Anyways, I was constantly having my hand very gently wrapped oh, no. <laughs> when I would say something I shouldn't have said. You know, and time and place. I had to be respectful. It was their environment. The North American minds, yeah. meaning what I mean, specifically? Well, I mean, all the servants, you know, they got uh, half a day off once a month. Wow. You know, I think they got $30 a month pay, you know, and seems like and he was a very wealthy man. Yeah. <laughs> so that discrepancy of stuff just never quite sat well with me. But, you know, I had to keep remembering that for them, they were getting medical and dental. You know, they were being fed. They were in a safe environment. That 20 or $30 was heading home to look after other family. And so it was, it was my agenda, my judgment. It was, had, wasn't theirs. Mm -hmm. So it was a good, humbling learning experience. Interesting. 
Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess it's interesting when, you know, you look at something one particular way and then you feel pretty rigid about it. But then mm-hmm. it's really, uh, it's a nice feeling when you're able to sort of shift your perspective and see it from a different way and really truly see it from another yes. way and then yeah. acknowledge, okay, maybe, maybe there's multiple ways to look exactly. at this. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I still don't agree with things that I saw there, but I also learned the flip side. There was so much happiness because he, all of his monks, uh, he had nuns and monks that he would bring by the busload from Tibetan refugee camps in India. Every year there'd be a new busload and they would stay until they were 15 and then they could choose if they wanted to continue being a monk or a nun or if they wanted to go home. And they would go home, you know, being educated. They would know English. They would have had a healthy experience. They'd have had medical and dental. And there was so much laughter around that place. Mm -hmm. And all these little boys playing soccer. And I was missing my kids. So I I hung out a lot with them. And and they were very sweet with me. I think they were missing their mom. So it was a win-win for everybody. (laughs) Wow, I'm so blown away with yeah. all the experiences that we've covered uh, so far here. This is well, amazing. Yeah, it's, being a writer gives you options, I think. <laughs> yeah, just because it's a flexible career to have? Yes, or? yeah. And, uh, and if you like to travel and then you can write too, then you can, you know, take advantage of those moments. Like when I got the email saying, well, you know, come to Kathmandu and see if, if you want to do anything, if you want to do a documentary. or So I lived with the, in the fam- family compound and... Realized I did want to do a documentary, but not on the person I could. Mm-hmm. Like I, I couldn't make it on the one I wanted to. <laughs> well, yeah. let, let's get back to the uh, Camino oh. here because I mm. think that uh, that's a kind of amazing how much time you and Evan have spent on it in the last yes. little bit here. But actually, yeah. maybe just for people who have never yeah. heard of the Camino oh. de Santiago. Yes, Santiago de Compostela, the Camino Trail. If you could uh, help give an explanation as to what this is. and It's um, a, a thousand-year-old pilgrimage route that starts in many places. Because Evans walked it from Geneva. Uh, people walk it from Paris. We've done part of or all of about six Caminos. There's sort of nine main ones. And they travel all over Europe and end up in Santiago in northern Spain on the west coast. St. James, one of the disciples, his bones are supposedly buried there. And uh, so it's it's been a pilgrimage route for years until, um, yeah, it was closed down for quite a number of years because of uh, politics and things. It didn't open up again until 1975, actually, with easy access. But now there are so many people and there are monasteries and convents and albergues like hostels all along the way. So every 20 kilometers or so, if you want, you can stop and it's bunk beds. It's very busy, getting busier and busier. We, we went from Le Puy in France to Santiago in 2011 and that was uh, 1600 kilometers. So we walked for 72 days, roughly 25 kilometers a day. And it was life-changing for me anyways. It was fabulous. Um, Now I'm hooked. (laughs) So we keep going back and hiking different Caminos. We did two this summer. I walked part of one and then Evan finished it when I came home. Yeah, so we walked Arl and Vézelay this summer. And I'm turning 65, so I would like to do a solo Camino. So this summer I'm hoping to do the Portuguese and the Anglais. And they're sort of the smallest of the Caminos. I'm just 
do it on my own. Okay. Well, yeah. you, when you say it's life changing, what uh, yeah. what do you specifically mean by that? Yeah, I've thought about this a lot, Chris. Hmm. Okay, so the community is fabulous. Anyone who's done it, it, the community keeps pulling you back. People you meet, the camaraderie. It's not easy. Uh, you know, you're sharing, you've got a bunk bed in a room with 24 other bunk beds and there's snoring and farting and <laughs> rustling. And, you know, it, it can be, sleeping can be an issue. Your feet hurt. Your legs hurt. You know, your, your feet hurt basically at the end of every day. But also you're walking, you're walking in fields and vineyards and over mountains and down dirt paths. And then you suddenly are in this incredible city, Burgos or Pamplona or Lyon. And everything you own in your life at that moment is on your back. And so things are very easy. Yeah, except, yeah. They're, except they're hard as well, except too. Except they're hard. But <laughs> I don't know, at the, end, it's, the day may be hard and long and and then... You reach the end and you have a cold beer or you have a glass of wine and you have a wonderful dinner and everybody's telling stories and there's like, you know, five languages happening at the table. And Evan was often in the role where, you know, he would be translating for a German woman into French for someone or into English. Like he would often be like this table translator, see him doing all this juggling where I, I confess I lean on him a lot. So because he is so good with that. So this is another thing that's going to be fun this summer. I'll find out how I do. On your own. <laughs> on yeah, own. well, traveling on your yeah. own is an amazing experience. Yeah. And I've done, I did a lot of it before I met him, but, you know, 32 years, we, and I like traveling with him. So other than the, the um, Nepal trip, I haven't traveled without him. And it's, it's fun. So this will be a, a different experience. Yeah, it's it's always fun traveling by yourself, I think, and yeah. because there's so much growth that happens within that. Mm -hmm. But I'm so mm -hmm. curious to just keep talking about the experience and what you mm -hmm. wind up finding, because it's hard to put into words, but if someone's a writer, I'm going to challenge you on this All a little right. bit. But uh, maybe I'll start with a question is because when I'm hiking, I, I find as if it's a meditation. Mm. I find as if my creative mind is engaged. Mm -hmm. uh, if my wife is with me, we wind up having conversation mm -hmm. that's very dream oriented and like, you know, planning for the future, but just dreaming big things. Yeah. And our minds go to expansive places. Mm -hmm. For yourself, when you're spending 72 days, mm -hmm. day after day, hiking, yeah. where where are your thoughts? <laughs> okay, I could tell you right now. Yeah, okay. Often they spiraled and I'd start a conversation and think, <laughs> you know, think, oh, I should have said that and I wish I'd done that. And how could they have done that? And, and so I had to watch myself because you... It's easy when you're just walking. And, and Evan and I have very different um, rhythms where I start out fast, steady in the mornings and he's kind of an ambler. And then by noon, we're switching. And at the end of the day, he's striding up hills and I am cursing my way behind him. <laughs> so even though we walk together, we often are, you know, he would always wait if there were the road or the path divided, he would always wait at the top of a hill or a division point. But often we'd walk on our own at our own pace too, which is, that's why you meet people and I would meet people who walked at my level. And oh my gosh, the Irish, they are the best walking companions. I have never laughed so much in my life. They are so funny. Oh, those Irish they are people. hilarious. 
hilarious. And they, we kept meeting all these Irish teachers that were on holidays. And so, yeah, they were fun. So we would meet people we would walk with and you'd meet someone and then you wouldn't see them for four days and then you'd run into them and it was like long lost family reuniting. And so the community and just you're out, you're outside every day. Life is simple. You get up, you put on your shoes, you close up your pack, you have your cafe au lait or whatever, you have a croissant or, you know, an egg, tortilla patata, whatever, you know, you can find in Spain. Is that right? Tortilla patata? I think that, yeah, the, like the potato. I don't know if you ever, anyways, I, they're delicious. They're just, it's just <laughs> eggs and potato, but it sounds it, delicious. It fills you up. Yeah. And it's in every bar you come to. Very easy to get cheap and cholesterol yummy. and carbs. It's... Absolutely. But you're working. Boy, you're walking oh. everything off. So when you're, when you're yeah. walking 25 kilometers a day, yeah. that, that's, uh, yeah. that's a lot. It's, I, it's so I lost easy. 20 pounds on that trip. And we were drinking and eating and, you know, you'd always end the day with wine or a beer. But you're working your buns off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, Evan gave a talk on the Camino at the library two years ago now, I guess. And the place was packed. And that's when I got a sense of how many people on this island have walked one or more of the Caminos. So it's a, it's a popular hike. The problem is now it's become so popular. We, I think we met one American when we walked in 2011. And then The Way came out. I don't, do you know that movie with um, Martin Sheen and his son, Amelia Estef? Anyways. Oh, I think yeah. I do. I think yeah. I do, yeah. And so it's very popular now with Americans even more so, which is not, it's not bad. It's just we didn't meet any. It wasn't a big thing in North America in quite the way. In Europe, everybody knows it. And in Spain, which has such a high unemployment rate, we were told it looks good on your resume if you've done the Camino. So a lot of young people walk it as one of the hoops they jump through to try to look for work. Wow, really? It looks good so, on your resume. It looks good on your resume. Huh. Yeah. I guess it probably plays in there's like the determination. I guess so, yeah. And there is a, a spiritual component to it for some people or religious. You know, people who walk it, I think I was telling you earlier that many people have been in crisis. So they have just been divorced. They have just been ill. Someone they love has died. They've lost a job. They're at a crossroads in their life. So it's not all, but a lot of them were using it as a time to decide what next. And there are definitely people who do it with religious intention, you know, and they stop at every church. And yeah, so it's, it's a real mishmash of people. It sounds great. It yeah. sounds amazing. It really does. And, uh, you know, yeah. just what you last mentioned there about people who are going through tumultuous periods mm-hmm. in their life and doing something that is simple yet difficult and allows yes. for a lot well of said. time and space uh, mentally and physically, I'm sure yeah. it's super healing. But you also yeah. showed me a tattoo on your wrist earlier yes. <laughs> that you got. Uh, so. That's when I discovered that, oh, when you get one tattoo... You want to get another and another. <laughs> but was that your first tattoo? Or? It is. It's my first tattoo. And I, I love it. And I just was thinking, ooh. It's just, it's um, a directional sign that you see on trees and fences and telephone poles that give you, that tell you where you're going when you're on the Camino. So it's like the path, the path directions. And I put it on my right hand and it goes into my writing hand. So it's, oh. I call it my power Camino. So symbol. we yeah. What year did you get that in? So that was, uh, what are we? I think it was when I turned 60. 
When I turned 60, I changed my name from Joyce to Joy because that the last, that C-E, mm-hmm. it's like a snake hiss. And my name is, my life is so good. It is has no snake hisses in it at all. <laughs> so now I go by Joy. Good move. So I changed my name. I like so, it. Yeah. I think that's great. Yeah. That's re- that's uh that's really an empowering thing to do yeah. obviously. There there are real advantages to being older. <laughs> you get to be crotchety sometimes and you get to not worry about things in the same way and and traveling as an older woman is I found really easy this summer. So Evan went ahead and so we we walked the first 500 kilometers of the Arles route from Arles to Toulouse. And then my knee was bugging me. So I said, you know what? I, I want to stop. So I went to England for two weeks on my own and, and Evan continued and did more walking. And, you know, every night I could go into a pub and have a Guinness and people talk to you. And there is something about being an older woman and not having to go through that whole gender thing that you do when you're in your 20s. And Yeah, it's great. I recommend it. Nice. <laughs> do you feel like life is just getting better as you get yes. older? Yeah, it is. It's good. I and love partly, hearing that. Yeah, That's great. Yeah. And, you know, my life is good. So I have a good good man in my life. My kids are doing great. I'm writing now. Um, so I'm retired from the film school, though I still do contract work of scripts and things. But, but now I'm I'm writing young adult novels. And uh, it's it's good. And actually, you just came out with a young adult I did. Adult I just novel. had a launch with uh, Zoe Landell, who's a neighbor of mine, and she also writes young adult. And mine is called Camino Maggie. And it's because in 2011, when we were first hiking and, you know, Evan working with all of these youth at risk. And at one point, I can't remember if he said it or I, anyways, the comment came up, you know, if some of the kids that he worked with, if he could take them on the Camino, that would have healed in a way that sending them to detention center or whatever didn't do, you know? So that's, that was my... That was the seed planted. So Camino Maggie is about a young girl who does a, a break and enter. And her punishment is to walk the 800 kilometers from Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Port, the base of the Pyrenees Mountains, to Camino, to uh, Santiago. And, you know, bed bugs, blisters, and betrayal. Who knows where it leads her? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not subtle here. I'm going to plug it. <laughs> and now I'm working on my second, which is an old Twilight Zone script that I wrote God knows, Maggie years ago. Well, really? An yeah. old Twilight Zone script. Yeah, and so I've turned it into a YA science fiction, young adult science fiction, which has been a blast. You're working on so, that right now? Yeah, I've just finished my final draft, so now I'm just getting covered, design done, and oh, I'll cool. be publishing it in a couple of weeks. What's the, what's the premise? Yeah. yeah, young girl um, is injured in a vehicle accident where her parents die, and an alien rescues her in the desert, and so... Adventures ensue. Okay. And, and what, what kind of alien are yeah. we talking here? Um, a friendly alien. I am of the friend. I'm in the, uh, who is it? Um, yeah, I'm in the friendly alien camp. Okay. You're I, in like the E.T. alien yes, camp, yeah, not the aliens I, I like alien friendly camp. aliens. I'm quite, I'm a huge fan of sci-fi. Yeah, totally. Me too, actually. I love sci-fi. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, okay, well, neat, right? Yeah. So you, you just said that you'd finished the final draft and you're just waiting yep. for... Uh... Yeah, so now I've... Uh, I, I The other thing that's quite wonderful in this island, for me, I have a writer's group of four women, five of us, four women and me. And I think there's probably 40 or 50 books between them. I'm the newbie in the group. 
Uh, we call ourselves Muddy Lotus because my line is in the mud of lust and love and pain and life and joy, a lotus grows. <laughs> mm. So it's great. We meet every two weeks. We share our work all the time. Everybody's working on books and memoirs and yeah. So it's they've been a blessing in my life. Yeah, as far as the writing, the writing world, that's absolutely integral to have mm -hmm. that, isn't it? Oh, I I just feel like I've been given this gift. I feel like I'm more creative and focused at the moment than I ever have been, and I'm I'm a pretty focused writer. But it's uh, I, you know, every two weeks I have my witnesses that I have to present to, so it's good. Deadlines what's, are good. <laughs> what's your uh, writing routine? What's, uh, I, I get up early. I write early in the morning. And what time? I get up about five. Okay. And then, yeah, early morning writing or researching or take a break, watch some TV and have coffee and then and then write for the day as much as I can. Do you I go for a walk halfway through the day or anything? I, or? I try. Evan and I haven't been doing it as much recently, but now that we're sort of in training for the summer, because he's going to maybe do the Camino Norte which I don't want to do because it's up and down and up and down. <laughs> Sounds way too hard. Okay. <laughs> too much work. I don't want to do it. So, yeah. So we have to get into exercising and walking, building up our stanima again. Okay. But for right now, you're just focused on writing and just, yep. just hammering away and spending the whole day. And, yeah. but no, I, it's easy in our, our, even here, you know, I just to have a loop, I can do the heart trail, can take the, the new, the scarf road and go to the driftwood. It's easy walking around here. And our neighbor and one of my writing buddies, Zoe has a dog. So I often go with her when she's walking the dog. So many. You don't have a dog. We used to. We used uh, to have a dog. We were actually taking care of a dog for three weeks. It uh, was such a pleasure to go for walks yeah. with the guy. Loved this it. island is incredible. And, I'm, yeah. and they're exotic dogs. They're from Dallas and Mexico. <laughs> they're all over the place. It does <laughs> seem like there's a lot of dogs from some unusual places yes. on the island. Yeah, yeah rescued. Sure. All yeah. these wonderful rescues. Yeah, where'd you get your dog? Well, he got him off the coast of Madagascar. I was like, what are you talking about? Really? What's going on here? Funny. I know. It's uh, a great place to have a dog. It's so easy. Definitely. We should get to this part now because uh, speaking of rescuing dogs and helping, mm. uh, this is like a terrible segue there. <laughs> Subtle, little man. Subtle. It's good. I, I found it in. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to go for it. Uh, well, well the second traditional question I'd like yes. to ask is uh, who's helped you on Pender mm -hmm. Island? And the reason for asking this, so people who haven't heard before, is that it's really interesting to see the connections that exist that we talked yes. about earlier, yes. the unknown connections. And yeah. this is a beautiful kind of connection because it <clears throat> shows the kind of supportive community that we yes. have. And I yeah, just really true. like hearing what people have to say about that. So mm -hmm. who's helped you on Pender yeah. Island. Well, I mentioned uh, Ellie, and many people listening will probably remember Ellie. She's moved to Victoria now, but she was so welcoming when we came here. And we had met her initially when we lived in 1991. And then we have a glorious neighbor, John Rain, who's a hoot, JJ. He's been lovely company. And it's the theater group, I think, we've developed some of our closest friends. So, you know, Keith and Tilly Smith and Barb Pender and just people who, I don't know, Karen and just that group is a very, and Jane Harrison, who I think is wonderful. She works at the clinic and Leslie McBain has become a dear friend. She brings her scotch when she comes to visit us and we drink wine and we just talk very personably. It's a, 
yeah i hmm well yeah you're, you're right you know and it's that whole thing of oh god who have i forgotten because there's so many good people on this island that i like but, and run into but what i'm hearing from you is uh, like in terms of answering the question as to who's <laughs> helped you it, it, mm-hmm. it seems as if you're uh, identifying uh people who have are, are there are like showing up and well said just welcoming constant uh, you know, funny little drop-offs. Uh, Jackie Gill will appear at our door and she'll have a big box. She and, and her partner, John, have a monstrous garden between the two of them. And she'll have a big box of vegetables or she'll drop off jams. At, you know, we have new neighbors, Mary and David, and they've been here two years, I guess. But uh, Mary and I exchange books all the time. So it's that ease of being with others here on this island. I find it a real gift. Interesting. Because when we lived, when you live in big cities sometimes, you know, the first year we lived in North Van, oh boy, that was one of the loneliest years. It was really hard to get to know people and people were very friendly, but they were busy. They didn't invite you to their house and they were often too busy to come to yours. So not like that on this island. I hope, I hope people find a similar experience that I've, I've had. You know, I think you have to be open to it, and uh, I think that you have to you have to open yourself up for mm-hmm. that to happen. And uh, that's inspiring to hear you say, and I think that's that's really wonderful. But yeah. I th- I think that that's how it works: is that uh, if you uh, you open your door, it, it gets reciprocated. Yeah. yeah, and Evan and I are both volunteer folk, so I'm plugging him a lot tonight. I'm realizing, but you know, he does Meals on Wheels, and he does medical drives, and he was a volunteer bus driver. You know, and, and I, I wash the, the equipment at the Red Cross room every two weeks that come, you know, all the walkers and the crutches and the wheelchairs and things. And I've also become, um, a duty officer. There are, I think, only six of us now in North and South Pender to help out with emergency services. And I, I love that. I want to be prepared for things <laughs> so that I can help out. Yeah. Uh, and then the theater, there's lots of volunteer stuff. So it's very easy on this island to reach out and pockets of people. Yeah. You know, I've been hearing more lately the idea of finding a sense of value in your life mm-hmm. can be found by helping others. Yes, I and, believe that. And that there's so many different ways to help other people. And I guess there's there's a lot of opportunities available on this there island are. in a lot of various ways to help other people. Yeah. And I feel incredibly grateful for my life. And, you know, it hasn't all, I mean, I've been kind of Pollyannish maybe in this talk, but it hasn't all been easy. But at the same time, where I am right now is, is good. And so I feel blessed and I want to show my gratitude, paying it forward, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting what you mentioned about. Did you say it was the Red Cross that you were helping? Yeah, there's a Red Cross room at the medical center where you can, for free, (laughs) it's amazing, you know, there's crutches and walkers and wheelchairs and, um, you know, bathtub seats, you know, things you put on the edges of bathtubs to hold on to as you're getting in and out and casts, air casts, and it's all free. It's incredible. But when it comes in, it has to be washed and cleaned up before it's put back on the shelf. So Okay. And so as a volunteer position... Yeah, because you know. I, I had my dad here for several times a couple of years ago, and I was able to just walk in and, you know, sign out a bunch of stuff, and it was a gift. Because, boy, if you have to pay to rent that stuff, it's really expensive. Huh. 
I didn't even know that existed. Thank oh, you for mentioning yeah, that. Yeah, it's fabulous. I feel really appreciative. And there's beds and, oh gosh, you know, it's, it's jam-packed with good stuff. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Um, something that just popped into my mind right now as a question is that uh, what what do you think that uh, you've wound up uh, learning about yourself in the second half of your life that uh, you didn't know in the uh, the first half of your life? Hmm. My body is stronger than I thought it was. I learned that from the Camino. Mm. I learned this very early because when when I spent that year in Australia and I I fell in love. Oh, and he was going to come home with me. And then I found out he was married. My heart was broken. <laughs> Nothing like a 19-year-old broken heart, you know. Mm-hmm. But I was sharing a house with four nurses, student nurses. And, you know, it's like four in the morning and they're just pouring me wine and I'm weeping away. And they're going to get their mates together and go beat that crap out of this guy. <laughs> and I thought, there are good people everywhere. <laughs> so it was like... A lesson of everywhere you go in the world, there are caring people who will reach out and help and love you in your terrible times. You know, so so as the older I get, the more and more I just see that happening. People reaching out. People, and- people are kind and good, and yeah, there are good people everywhere in the world. I remember my uncle, who was a farmer in Manitoba. I don't think he'd ever been out of Manitoba. And I had just come back from Australia and Mexico, I guess, and different trials. And he said, why would you want to go? You don't know anybody. And so for him, it was inconceivable that you would want to leave the familiar. And part of that was the fear of the us and them, which I think is rampant in our world at the moment. So the more we can see them as like us, it's a good world. It is. It is a good world. And again, thank you for saying that because mm-hmm. it's uh, it's not really the message that is presented in mainstream no. media. What you're, what you're saying is just the exact opposite, right? Yeah. But, uh, the division. And it's, you know, it, again, I'm not blind to the horror stories of what's happening out there. Evan and I watched the news tonight and we're just watching the refugee, Syrian refugee camps, you know, and you just want to weep. But yeah, I don't know. Sometimes there's only, when we were traveling in India, every day we would get up and it would be, okay, who are we going to give money or what are we going to do today? Because it was bottomless. And we ended up buying food and giving it to the older women because they were the bottom of the totem pole of desperation. You know, the young kids are cute and they can attack. They're not, they don't have an easy life, but they will find people who will give them money. But the old women... All they own is the sari on their body. So it it was a good, really good time for my kids, I think. Good lesson of how little you need, how little a lot of people live with. Saying no is huge. That's That's my life lesson. I have learned to say no as I've gotten older, mm. which I was not good at. Or actually the line I use is, oh, let me think about that overnight. That was a friend who gave me that line. It's been invaluable because I, I too often would say, oh, yes, because I am interested in a lot of things. But but then I'm stretched. Right. And that yeah. doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good at all because some, you know, it's family or someone ends up losing out. And so saying no has been a real gift. So now I don't do night meetings. I do the emergency services work. I, I play around with solstice and I do the um, Red Cross room. And then people, 
stuff in my life. Yeah, it's good. Saying no is really good. For sure. But that's good advice, too, because, you know, if you're uncomfortable saying no in the moment, then at least you give yourself yes. an opportunity to yeah. just not say yes mm-hmm. and not put yourself in an awkward situation. Right. Yeah. And it's not that I I can't say no usually. It's just I, I get really excited and interested initially. And then when I go home and I think, oh, my God, I've committed to this. And wait a minute, I'm supposed to do that. So I, I have sucked myself dry a couple of times doing that. So. Getting older is good. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. I I like it. It's something I rarely hear from people, and uh, I I, I like it. It's good. And we are healthy, and, you know, I know watching my father who is struggling physically, that's hard. But while you're healthy, it's good. What is your dad's first name? Ron. Ron. Yeah. Yeah. And he's a tough old Bushman who just isn't giving up, but he's struggling. So, breaks my heart. And I'm sorry, does he live nearby? He's in Parksville in a, in a seniors complex care facility. Okay. So, I go quite regularly and see him and we talk two or three times a day. Um, yeah. And he's, you know, he's an amazing guy. He's just, he has dementia and he's just done. Okay. That's why there's this, there's an, a very interesting thing happening April 3rd and 4th at the um, Anglican Church on um, end of life. Cramming for the finals. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Talk about timely like and important. Yeah, yeah definitely. It's, it's yeah. I mean, you two are young and now, but there will come a time. Oh, yeah, for sure. Definitely. Yeah. I actually read a book that changed my thoughts uh-huh. on things called Die Wise by Stephen Jenkinson. He, you know, I know the title. I recognize that right away. Yeah, I think it's, it's a pretty popular book. Die I wise. saw him at, Hol- at Hollyhock and oh. uh, really was enamored by his presence. And I, I was like, I don't, I don't care what this person's writing wow. about. I'm going to read it. And then it really sort of changed yeah. my perspective on what an important uh, life is. Oh, I love Hollyhock. That it's good. Great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's more sacred land in BC. <laughs> oh yeah, totally. It's yeah, yeah, and Cortez itself, I think, is a yes. amazing spot. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll just wind things down well a little bit here, but uh, you know, before we get to the very end, what I actually just wanted to touch on just a little bit more was you talking about your seventeen summers mm, at in this. the bush. Yeah, and so maybe maybe just a little mm-hmm. bit more about that uh, of of what what that experience was like for you. So my brother and I had to work hard, and we had chores, family business. Anyone who's grown up in a family business knows what it's like. I was cleaning cabins. I was I had chores as soon as I could do anything, carry plates to a table. You know, so that was good. It was a it was a traditional family, unfortunately, and that my brother got to go out guiding when he was 13. He was amazing fly fisherman, is an amazing fly fisherman. But uh, my mother and I stayed on shore. That's that's the way it was. So, so my mom was kind of nurse and radio operator and cook and manage the books. And, you know, my dad was guide and builder. And actually, they built they built the cabins. My mother was an amazing woman. But um, one thing I will say is that my parents... My father was a Hudson's Bay factor on Baffin Island and in the north during World War II. And then he came down and married my mom. And a week later, she was in a very isolated Hudson's Bay post in northern Quebec. And they were there for a long time, too. So they just instilled a real work ethic 
And if there is a problem, you solve it. You know, you don't, if you're in a place where you only get a plane once every two weeks or <laughs> you suck it up and you figure out how you're going to make it work. So, so growing up as a kid in that environment, we were given a lot of responsibility and incredible freedom. You know, as long as the dishes were done and the cabins were clean and the wood boxes were full and the lanterns were full of gas and my brother and I could take off for five hours into the bush. We had bears, and, you know, but I mean, we were, we were really good 22 shots. My parents made sure we, we were good with the 22 very early on, just in case we needed to. And so we just had freedom in a way that I think a lot of kids haven't had. And taking off in a boat for four hours and like, there's nothing there. There's just bush and hundreds of islands. And so they trusted us and we just assumed that skill that we could take care of things. Uh, and then reading, reading was huge. So because there was nothing else to do in the evenings, you just read. So I, for a writer, it was perfect. Just read and read and read. We would get those 12 books from the Montreal library. There would be three books for every member of the family age appropriate. And by about day five, I would have read all of mine and all my brothers. So I moved on to my parents. You know? Wow. And, so I was reading inappropriate things that were not age of, like Philip Roth and stuff, and I probably should not have. But you just turned to books in a way that was a gift. That sounds like a beautiful childhood. That yeah. sounds so great. It was great. It was really, really, really good. And my cousin Leslie would come. She was about my age, and she would she started coming up for the summers to keep me company because uh, Lindsay was off guiding. So Leslie and I would do the work on the, you know, in the camps and. And then I'd have company. That was great. Trust. It's really good. I just think of the helicopter parenting that I probably have been guilty of. There certainly wasn't an issue for my parents. Mm, trust. Yeah. Just know the kids will handle it. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. Yeah. This has been, this has been great. It has been great. You're really great at this. Uh, you're really great at this. Uh, <laughs> this interview has been uh, like it's been different than any We've other. We've covered one I've done. a long range, haven't we? How Wait. many people have you done now? What my what number? I believe you are number. Wait a second. The answer to everything. Forty-two. Woohoo! That's great. <laughs> wow. So you've more than passed your twenty-five limit. Well done. Yeah. Well, it was twenty-five for that year, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Wow. No, and you've been doing this for two years now? Two years now. Wow. No. Compliments to you. Compliments to you. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for coming in, Joy. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> thank you. All right. Well, I'd like to thank Joy again for that wonderful interview. And to honor that interview, I decided I would come to the Magic Lake Parks and Trail sign. So right now I'm standing on the corner of Schooner Way and Ketch Road. And this is the entrance to Magic Lake Estates. And there's a sign out front of the fire hall that has a map of all the parks and trails located in Magic Lake. And there's something about this map that made me think of Joy and in the interview we did and I stopped to take a long look at this the other day, and I was just mesmerized by what appears to be a pretty simple-looking map on first view. But as I went deeper into it, I was really surprised, impressed, and mesmerized by 
this piece of art. So it's just on what I believe is a piece of plywood. And it shows all the roads and the lakes and all the little trails that exist and the different parks in this area. And it looks like it was done by Pamela B. Brooks. And then in brackets, it says, after Warren Moore. So I guess Warren Moore did the original one and Pamela Brooks did this one. And there's no date on it, but yeah, it just really made me think about all the creativity that has existed in Joy's life. And there's so many little great things like this on our island that we we might take a quick glance at or might look at once and never again. And for me, it was really nice to spend a lot of time in front of the sign the other day. So I decided to come back here on a moonlit night in the cold when no cars were going to drive by and create any noise in the background. So thank you very much for listening to this podcast. Thank you to Ben McConkie for providing the theme music. And until next time.